Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm a feminist, but this time of year, December... There's loads of lists online where people say, this is the 20 best podcasts of the last year. And these are the funniest comedians of 2019. And these are the people you should watch in 2020. And every time I'm not on one of those lists, I get really sad. I know it's not a competition, but it is because they make it a competition because of lists. I don't think there should be lists of feminists, for example. There should be no roundup of feminists because feminists shouldn't be competing to be on a list. That's an outrageous idea. Nor should podcasters. Why are we telling podcasters that some podcasts are more important than others when, I mean, clearly they are because whenever I'm on one of those lists, I think, yes, that's correct. Yeah. But that's as- true, actually. And I do this podcast, and I once did another one called Desert Island Dicks, and I do know which one I think is more important. <laughs> this one, Debs, to chill out. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a feminist, but I've got a sexist baby. Um, I say baby because I'll say that forever, but for clarity, he's four now, but if anything, the sexism is getting worse. Uh, I'm a feminist, but my sexist baby said to me the other day, should we have a photo? And I said, oh, yes, please. And he went, okay, so you stand there and take it, and I'll be the one who's in it. (laughs) Did you make him have a selfie with you to retrain his view? No, you just took a photo of him? No, I didn't do it. I said, thanks very much, and walked off in a huff. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but... I've seen that game on Instagram, Instagram versus real life, where you post a really hot picture of yourself. And the justification for that is you're going to post a dorky picture of yourself to go, oh, but in real life I look like this. But really what you're hoping is that everyone just sees the hot picture of you and goes, oh, wow, they're really hot. And I have no interest in that game at all because I've got no interest in showing you what I'm like in real life, Uh, mostly because I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe any of my worst photos I don't want to believe it when I open the selfie camera the wrong way round. I don't want to believe oh God, that. That's awful, isn't I, it? I, it's anyone in... Imagine the sort of person you'd have to be if you enjoyed that moment. I mean... 18 times Presumably, oh. Jennifer Aniston goes, oh, no, no. I believe my own mirror management and I believe my best selfie story. I'm happy that way. It's not about you, it's about me. I don't want to believe the truth... I will never play Instagram versus reality because I think I look like my best Instagram moments. I'm convinced of it. 
I don't care what you think. I don't care what you can see right now as you look at me in this theatre. You're wrong. I look better. I'm a feminist, but um, the other day I had a bath with my sexist baby. And um, he said, oh, it's so I do not like these legs all spiky. I said, yeah, all right. And he went, they look dirty. Wow. What, he wants you to shave your legs? Yeah. Wow. And the worst thing is, I'd had a wax three days before. Oh, that's... I was that's like, dude, crazy. this is virtually the best you're going to get. This is the best that And he's like, well, be. it's still a bit spiky. <laughs> oh. Wow. Yeah. I really feel for his future girlfriend yeah. or boyfriend. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but today I heard that Sanna Marin had become Finland's Prime Minister and she is now the youngest female head of government in the world at the age of 34. And my first thought was, wow, Jacinda Ardern must be massively pissed off. (laughs) I mean, I don't mean to make female heads of state compete, but she'd be annoyed because formerly she was the youngest at 37 and she would have thought, I'll have that record for years to come. And then this little Finn <laughs> comes waltzing through the door, 30 fucking four, no age, no age for a world leader, is it? 34. I just think before you're 35, <laughs> what do you know really about even yourself? Yeah. She's still on Tinder probably. <laughs> I just think if you're on Tinder, you can't be head of state. But I'm, I mean, I'm genuinely delighted and she looks amazing and apparently she's very liberal and Finnish. So, yay, well done. But also... She took two she weeks... She only to, took two weeks maternity who, who, leave. Who's, who did? Finland. Oh, Jacinda oh, no. Ardern only took two weeks maternity leave. Are you saying that as a judgment that she should have taken no, more? No, she's saying that's impressive. Right, well, also, oh, but we God. mustn't make people who take long maternity yeah. leaves feel judged. You're right. good. I'll Whatever be honest you with do. you, mate. Like it is impressive, but equally, there's still bits falling out of you at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. I'm there's, just going to say. Take all the fucking time you need. However long. Let's fund maternity leave properly, even for prime ministers. Let's do that. However long you've taken for maternity leave, whether that be an hour or the rest of your life, we support you. Yeah. We love you. We feminist you. Yay. We feminist you. <laughs> Feministed all over you. I'm a feminist, but I co-parent my sexist baby 50-50 down the line with his dad, my ex. But the knowledge that from the next year I might have to not see him on alternate Christmas days makes me want to kick feminism right in the tits. (laughs) Not particularly funny, just an honest (laughs) observation on my life. Because of Because we're genuinely co-parenting. Part of my feminism is the fight for, is the fight Mm. to go to work and not have... You know, maybe 25, 30% of the time I'm at work of an evening, have someone say to me, who's got your kid? Which they would never, ever say to a man at work of an evening. But you've then got this world where you're like... To a man at work on an oil rig for five years, never never getting off. (laughs) Who's got your kids? They'd just be like... (laughs) Even if he said, I've got 12 kids, they'd just be like, good for you. Do they write? Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Jessica Mostafi, and our very special guests, Claudia Dross and Sarah Martini, talking about Lesbos. <laughs> <laughs> We've been given... 
drafted Reese's oh peanut. Who got us these? Did you get us Did these? Somebody go to the shop. No, oh. it wasn't you. It wasn't you. <gasps> okay, so everyone much. else can leave now. I just want to be oh, alone with my Reese's wow. peanut butter cup. <laughs> oh, crumbs alive. No. Oh. Oh. I've had to start saying crumbs alive when I'm feeling a big emotion because... Um, Your son can understand swearing now. Well, and has been able to for a couple of years. And, <laughs> and um, we were in the car. Oh, God. Oh, this is a while. He was, he was probably only about two. And um, this is a little bit road ragey. And he just sort of out of nowhere, he went, Daddy says, oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> and I said, oh, he does. He does. And I made the dick error of saying and what does mummy say and he says mummy says fucking fuck <laughs> so I was like no she doesn't no she doesn't mummy says crumbs alive crumbs and now, and now two years on when I am I do go crumbs alive has he taken to saying that no he still says fucking fuck no he just fuck. copies the swears yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> they do though, children. They know a swear word. It's really weird. Of all the words you say, they just pick it up and they just repeat. Yeah. Apparently, it's because it comes from the emotional part of your brain, and it's the same reason why it's easy wow. to remember swears and stuff like that. But What's that? I think part of it is it gets a reaction, and they'll do whatever they can to get a reaction. It's fascinating watching Naz mm. Four try and do that, actually, even in really interesting ways. So my friend bought him a really lovely book, the new Julia Donaldson book, which is called The Smeds and the Smooze. Mm. And it's about these two different types of alien, the Smeds and the Smooze, and the Smeds are blue, and the Smooze are red, and two of them get together, and their families aren't happy about it. Is and this then about they... the Tories and Labour? No, well, you're like, oh my God, it's about interracial relationships and stuff, because they grow up, and they keep seeing each other, and then they eventually elope on a spaceship and come back with a little purple baby <laughs> um, but on their family's hunts for them the families become friends anyway at the end it says for all the children of Europe so it's making a comment about Brexit but is it about Tories and Labour I don't know I don't know what the comment is about but anyway the, so he'll do things purposely to wind me up so he'll he'd like come up like this and be like check that you've seen me take that and then run off with it so it's all like to get a reaction <laughs> And what's so funny is I've read him this book now over and over again, going, oh, my God, it's so nice. I'm teaching him about, like, you know, division in society, about, about all this sort of acceptance. And then the other day he says to me, mummy, mummy, I'm hanging out with a smoo. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I love smooths, so that's a great thing. And he went, but I'm a smet. And I was like, I don't care, I don't mind. I think it's great if a smed's friends with a smoo. And he was like, you're meant to be annoyed. <laughs> And, um, and it turns out what he's taken from the whole book, why he loves it, is because two kids are fucking their parents off. Oh, oh. Yeah. Sexist. Yeah. I think children just do. They just want that reaction. My yeah. friend was telling me that his little boy, they just got home the other day and he just went, something like, buggery bums or something like that. And very he said, posh, I, very posh friends. He said, I... <laughs> He said, I didn't, it just didn't react. And he said, but then, of course, I realised no reaction was a reaction. Yeah. Because he didn't say, oh, what was that that you just said? He just was just like poker face, like he didn't hear it. And he said he saw his kid looking up to sort of see what he was going to do. Mm. And, of course, just going... <laughs> is its own reaction. Yeah, because yeah, the yeah. kid knows you're meant to be reacting and why aren't you reacting? And are you not reacting to not make a big deal of it? Yeah. You know, they know. They're so clever. Also, I'm so sorry for devious. saying that you were posh slash had posh friends for knowing someone whose kid said buggery bums when I am someone who consciously has chosen to say crumbs alive. <laughs> yeah, to be fair. Yeah. To be strictly fair. Um, Check myself before I wreck myself. <laughs> 
I think you meant to say check your privilege, not check yourself before you wreck yourself. I've made it more succinct. <laughs> I'm high on Reese's peace. <laughs> you can never call anyone else posh. Now you've said I'm high on Reese's peace. That's it now for you. Even the Queen wouldn't say I'm high on Reese's peace. <laughs> on a singular piece. I wonder if the Queen's ever had a peanut butter cup. Yeah. Do you reckon? Yeah. Like that on her own in her bed. <laughs> I don't think on her own in a bed. She's probably had one She's at been on her own in... I've been watching The Crown. She's been on her own in a bed since 1921. <laughs> That's not true. She does, although there was a lovely little... And I know some people don't like The Crown because they think it's propaganda. Which or they're is. Scottish. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit, at times, propagandary, mm. I admit, but it is some very charming television at the same time. And storytelling's all about point of view and blah, 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 blah. Don't watch it if you don't like it. Uh, but, okay, my friend Tobias Menzies... He's, he's fucking amazing. Amazing, it? and he's a really old friend of mine. He's Prince Philip. He lived with Tom and me when he was doing renovations for a few months. So we're like really old, old, old buddies. And I just love how he talks like this. It's very amusing watching your friend be soon Prince Philip. And, uh, so good. It's really funny. But uh, there was a lovely scene where... Oh, Prince, I haven't seen was, the last two episodes yet. Is it going to be spoilers? No. Cool. Just basically there's some tension between the Queen and Prince Philip. And he just comes and gives her a massive snog. And she looks up and she's like, oh. And then um, she says, oh, right, I'll just finish this and I might be up in a minute. And he says, she says, I'll be up in a minute. And then he says, oh, will you? <laughs> and she says, unless you don't want me to. Yes! Like that. And then he walks off. And they literally show him skipping. Yeah, and smirking. And then, and then it cuts back to her and she does what? Well, she does a side smirk. Yeah. They're both going to be They're at it. They're both like, I'm going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get it. Yeah. DTF. One's up all night oh, to get lucky. Yeah. One's up all night to get lucky. Um, <laughs> there was that really... Really, filth, wasn't it? There Lovely, was a, there repressed was filth. Absolute filth in season one when Matt Smith was Prince Philip, uh, where he's getting all bent out of shape because she's more important. Uh, the whole show is about people bent out of shape because someone else is more important. That is the bent, whole show. That is the whole show. <laughs> it's just formulaic as house. <laughs> uh, but at one point, he says something like, oh, you could, something like, oh, you could get on your knees to me right now or something. And it implies that the Queen... Sucks dick. <laughs> I was doing noises and winks, so no one would say that. <laughs> it's a podcast, though, Deb, so... Fair. Enjoyed Fair. saying that about the Queen. Oh, do you think she ever has? Do you think she must have? She must have I gone down. I don't think she has. Do I genu- if you ask me, do, you, do I genuinely think Queen Elizabeth II has sucked the cock of any man? <laughs> I reckon I'm going she's with got, no. I'm no, going with I'll no. I'll tell you why I think no. she has. No, 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 no. This is not no, appropriate no, conversation. No, no. I'll tell you why I think she has. I think she's, she's more likely to have fed a corgi mouth to mouth than she is <laughs> to have had a phallus in there. Well, look, she might I, have had one tapped near. <laughs> While she kept an absolute poker face. No, do you know why? Couldn't I, do this on Radio Four. Fucking no, hell! You really couldn't. <laughs> You couldn't. It's only because we broadcast on Her Majesty's internet that we're allowed to do it at all. Um, and if you are from abroad, it's very rude in this country if you refer to the internet not to call it Her Majesty's internet. You should always do that. Um, this is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White. With me is Jessica Foster-Q. And today we're talking about Lesbos. And I don't mean by Lesbos... 
No, because that is all I knew on the brief. So yeah. can we just be very clear? Yeah. Let's I took that theme and that brief, and it's only later when I thought, great, great excuse to do this bit of stand-up, that you then go, oh, no, it turns out actually these are people with harrowing stories yes, to tell. Yes, yes, yes. They just I, happen to be associated with Lesbos. Yes. So the island of Lesbos, <sighs> historically associated with lesbians, Jessica Foster Q is now claiming because all she saw on the brief was Lesbos, she's now gone into a same-sex relationship <laughs> as research for the show. No. That's, what she, that's what I've just heard. <laughs> She's like, I'm so dedicated to the podcast. I've gone out. I've got myself a girlfriend. We're very happy now. And I've Never done not my on bit. theme. Never not on theme. She's... We did a show on tattoos once. A whole back is a dragon now. A feminist dragon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A, it's Call, a fierce I, woman dragon. Ironically called Lesbos. Um, but we're talking about the island of Lesbos and uh, what's happening there at the moment. And uh, many of you will know that the biggest refugee camp in Europe is on the island of Lesbos in Greece, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Hello, Guilty Feminist. I just wanted to let you know, if you live in America or Canada, I will be with you very soon. We are recording The Guilty Feminist live in Boston on the 2nd of January, in New York on the 4th and 5th of January, in Philadelphia on the 7th of January, in Chicago on the 9th of January, Toronto on the 12th, Vancouver on the 15th, San Francisco on the 17th, Seattle on the 20th, and Los Angeles on the 22nd of January. Go to guiltyfeminist.com and you'll find links to all those venues where you can buy tickets. We'll also be in Australia and New Zealand in February. Look on the website for those dates as well. Come see us while we're in town. If you're in the United Kingdom, the Guilty Feminist live show is back on tour May 2020 and tickets go on sale today. Yay. So we start this time at the Hammersmith Apollo in London on the 1st of May. Get tickets now. They're going to go really quickly. And then we go to Brighton, Ipswich, Hull, Guildford, Nottingham, Salford, York, Norwich, Halifax, High Wycombe, Woking, Richmond, Aylesbury, Crawley, Watford, Southend, Coventry, Oxford, Glasgow, Plymouth, Birmingham, Bournemouth, Sheffield, Cardiff and Newcastle. We will see you in one of those venues. Tickets make a great Christmas present. That's a good idea. Also for Christmas, if you're looking for stocking fillers, we have some wonderful merch that we've made sure is ethically sourced. We have sister hoodies that say the sisterhood protects us from the rain. We have aprons that say I'm a feminist, but I do love a good apron. We've got tea towels. We've got T-shirts. We've got mugs, all sorts of different slogans, uh, notebooks. And you know that the profits go to help us do stuff like Suffragettan and projects with Choose Love and that kind of thing. So get in and get them now at guiltyfeminist.com. In addition, Steve Alley, who makes necklaces has his two standard designs out, the ones that say Guilty Feminist and Woman in Arabic, but he's added some new designs. Many of you remember Shaolan, who came on and taught us a little bit of Chinesey, Chinese characters and how we break them down. And she taught us the Chinese characters for gender mean the birth of your heart, not the birth of your body. So we thought this was a really lovely idea and because it had come through the Guilty Feminist, as Steve has made a necklace that says the birth of your heart in Chinese characters. It's really beautiful design as well. 
And he's also made a Choose Love necklace that's quite chunky and lovely. It says Choose Love in Arabic. If you go to our website, you can find a link to Road from Damascus. You can just Google Road from Damascus and Steve will get you those necklaces in time for Christmas if you order soon. And speaking of Choose Love, I will be at the Choose Love store in London at 3pm on the 21st of December doing a book signing. Now, you need to buy the book somewhere else. It's got a brand new snazzy, sexy cover for this Christmas. So if you want to buy one for somebody else for a Christmas present, or you haven't managed to get one yourself yet, go and buy one in a bookshop, ideally one that pays their tax, and then bring it on the 21st of December. If you don't want a book signed, you might want something else signed, or you might want a selfie, or you might want me to make you a little video for a friend that says I'm a feminist, but I will be at the Choose Love Store doing that. And when you're there, please buy some life-saving supplies for refugees. You can buy a baby grow for a baby that's currently in freezing conditions. You can buy a life jacket. You can buy a hot meal, a shower. And you know that that money goes exactly where they say it's going to go. Saturday, the 21st of December at 3 p.m., I will be in the Choose Love store. Come by and see me. And don't forget to choose love. You can go on choose.love and buy these things at any time. You don't have to come into the store. And now back to the podcast. Please welcome to the stage the incredible Jess Vostokoe! Hello. As well as being a comedian, I'm a parent to a four-year-old, quite a naughty one. And when I was pregnant, I would say to people, I don't care if I have a boy or a girl. I just want to have a strong daughter or a gentle son. (laughs) What a prick. Um, (laughs) And as karma for that smugness, I've got a very violent boy. (laughs) He's like a one-man stag do. (laughs) He is, however, growing out of it. And in absolutely terrible news for my comedy, he's becoming quite a nice guy. Gut it. Also, for the relevant record, I'm pansexual. I know, I know, my dad lives 200 miles away from where we are right now, and I could almost hear him from here saying, Oh, for Christ's sake, what is that? Pan what? <laughs> pansexual means exactly what it sounds like. I find well-cooked food hugely erotic. <laughs> and I fancy men who refuse to grow up. <laughs> what it also means is that I'm... <laughs> Someone got it a bit late there. Fine. Second wave. I'll take a second wave. Um, What it also means is I'm liable to fall for anyone, regardless of their gender or lack thereof. Right now, uh, my ex-partner, my son's dad, and I are currently knockers deep in looking around primary schools for my son to start going to next September. Uh, You'll have seen the uh, story in the news this month about Anderton Park, a primary school in Birmingham, where there have been protests outside against the new law, which means that from next September, children will be taught, amongst other things, that LGBT plus families exist and that there's nothing wrong with them. This month, a High Court judge ruled that these protests directly outside the school gates are permanently banned. Right, good, because LGBT plus families do exist. I know you can't see me, you can only hear me, but I absolutely promise that I do exist. I'll pinch myself if you want. Ow! See? I'd have more sympathy with the protesters if the new curriculum demanded that children get taught about something the existence of which was debatable, like unicorns or affordable housing. Not only do we exist, last time I checked, I wasn't even evil. Admittedly, I have got a top hat, cape and handlebar moustache, but that's because I'm never not ready to be cast in a Fred Astaire biopic and I haven't had time for a wax. (laughs) 
so I've been doing tours around these schools where I live, and I'm so lucky because the schools are all really amazing. Um, shame about some of the parents, though. <laughs> I've got friends who still live in Dorset, where I'm from, and they all got like individual tours with their partner around each school that was an option. Not in London. You go around with 800 other parents. <laughs> And then one of these tours, there was a dad on the tour who genuinely trod on a child in every room. <laughs> it's like whack-a-mole meets the Hunger Games. <laughs> one parent at a school in front of everyone said to the deputy head, how will you cope if it turns out that my child is extremely academically gifted? <laughs> I've never in my life wished a thicker kid on anyone. What a big head. This is Britain, a beautiful, multicultural, tolerant Britain. But I thank you very much. I'll have you know, even if you do think that your child is absolutely brilliant, you are here, and the least you can do is have the common decency to be bloody embarrassed about it. <laughs> the worst thing, though, is that half of these... But Did someone boo? <laughs> Just the one American in who's like, oh, my child's amazing. Um, <laughs> Fucking nothing worse than parents who are like, my child, I do think my child's exceptional. You're biologically determined to think that. Don't share it proudly. They're probably average. <laughs> Fucking eat that. The worst thing is that half these parents have brought their stupid toddlers along with them because they're going to get part of the choice. They're going to ask a three-year-old what their favourite school was. Here's why you don't do that. I picked up my son from a gymnastics lesson when he was three. He was in there with a mate. That kid doesn't talk like loads at that point. He was very young. So my friend, his mum, said, well, could you ask your kid um, what they do in there? Because it's one of those places where you pay a tenner and then they go in for two hours and you get two hours. Get here. <laughs> and so I was picking him up. And as he came out of the class, I said to him in front of them all, what did you do in gymnastics? And he very proudly went, I didn't listen. <laughs> You're not going to ask that guy which school he should be going to. <laughs> the protesters have argued that this new relationship education is sexualising their children. It's just not. Um, they don't suddenly start handing out big gay karma sutra like a modern day Gideon Bible. <laughs> there isn't even any such thing as a big gay karma sutra. Believe me, I've checked. <laughs> One protester said that the school was overemphasizing a gay ethos. Hardly, mate. It's a school that's trying to celebrate difference and remove judgment. If it's emphasizing a gay ethos you're after, can I recommend a lovely documentary called RuPaul's Drag Race? <laughs> it is relationship education, learning what all the things a happy relationship, including friendships, etc., might look like in these kids' lives. How can that be anything other than brilliant? How can that do anything other than teach compassion and tolerance and safety? from unhappy relationships. The protesters argue that this ban is in breach of their human rights. No one has a human right to make other families scared, sad or unsafe. You can bring up your kid to hate my kid if you like, but I'll bring up my kid to love your kid regardless. Sorry, there was no jokes in that bit. This is why I am emotional with relief that the judge, Mr Justice Mark Warby, has banned these protests because I've been having this nightmare, this daymare about picking up my son from his future primary school amidst the parents of his friends on tannoys and with placards saying that they don't think we should exist. And I would have to say to my son, what did you do at school today? And I would be genuinely hoping and praying that he would proudly reply, I didn't listen.
Hello there, it's Jess here. Um, Jess Fostercue, the one co-hosting the episode that you're listening to. I just wanted to quickly let you know that I am on tour for the whole first half of 2020 with my show Hench, um, and I would so love you to come along to it. I start in the whole of January in London at Soho Theatre, then I go all around the UK and Ireland, and then including from the end of March to the end of April, I'm at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and then back all around the UK again until the middle of June. Um, if you would like to come oh i would love to have you there you can get tickets from my website it's the simplest place that's where they all are go to jessicafosterq.com forward slash my hyphen doings it's not a list of my poo-poos it's a list of my gigs thank you friends please welcome to the stage deborah francis white <laughs> So I just want to tell you that I recently was taken to Lesbos by Josie Norton, who runs Help Refugees, Choose Love. And I didn't realise what a big privilege it was until I got out there, because I was taken to places that I wouldn't have got to go if I'd gone out on my own, and that most people can't go. And it was absolutely extraordinary. And she trusted me with that because she felt that I would communicate that to you. And she knows that the Guilty Feminist listeners have really supported Choose Love. And she said there are times when we just wouldn't have had what we needed. And the Guilty Feminist listeners just came to the aid of Choose Love Help Refugees at the right time when we asked. So firstly, we went into the camp in Lesbos, which you have to show your passport. They won't let anybody in anymore. I think it's because they don't want journalists going in actually photographing the worst excesses of it and partly because they don't want people being tourists in a refugee camp rightly and wrongly they don't want the press to see all the worst excesses um there's space for 3,000 in that camp um it was a prison camp and it's now a refugee camp which is no place for people who are traumatized who've come through multiple trauma to be in a prison camp it's really concrete and barbed wire it's horrible but there is space for 3,000 there's currently 14,000 people there so there's things being built over there was like a children's play slide and that slide goes into a tent now because there's no place for a child to slide down a slide everyone gets two meters two square meters they've had to go into the next door olive grove which they've rented help refugees have I think paid the rent on that and there's an amazing group called movement on the ground who are trying to flatten it because people are living on a hill on an olive grove like a hill so tents can you imagine pitching a tent on a really rocky desert like hill you can't you know and I saw a disabled woman with sticks sort of trying to get out of her tent climb down like a mountain goat to get to a bit of flat land so she could go and wash there are absolutely amazing 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 humanitarians and NGOs out there uh, there was a man called Jonathan who's running watershed and they do sewage out there and that's you know if they didn't have Jonathan and his team they would get cholera everyone would just die like it would be such an epidemic but I talked to him a lot because I was just so intrigued as to what would make someone day in and day out relentlessly deal in shit basically that's what that man is doing and I just thought you are such an extraordinary human being. But when he showed me around, I started to understand it more because he was so proud of everything. And he said, when we first got here, there were no loos and people just having to sort of crap in an area. 
And then we put these loose in. And then he showed me every single thing they'd done. We first of all got cold showers. Then we got this big bank of hot showers. And they're always trying to troubleshoot because, you know, there's crap bubbling up and they're having to push it down. They get lots of complaints, of course. It's a bit of a thankless task in a way. I mean, people love them as well, of course. But, you know, when things are going wrong and they're under-resourced and understaffed, it's really easy to get a lot of people coming up going, look, can you deal with this? And I thought, what makes a man do this but then he told me this story of the first time they put hot showers in and he said I could hear mothers taking their children in and getting them clean and warm for the first time even if it was just for a couple of minutes that their children could be clean and warm before they went back out into the dirt and cold and he said they were howling and he cried as he told me that that he said you could hear them and they were just so like there was this moment of humanity where mothers could get their children clean And I was like, that's why he does it. That's why he does it and keeps doing it. There was an amazing community center called One Happy Family where somebody had come along with some money and said to refugees living in the camp, what do you want to do with this money? And they said, we need a community center. We need somewhere that's not this, you know, frankly, ghetto. So they built with the refugees who kind of architected it, this amazing community center that anyone can go to And there's like a makeshift cinema in there. There's barbershop. There's a school for little children. There's a nursery. But it's all really beautifully done. A garden, herb garden. There's activities. You can learn pottery. All sorts of lovely things. That I found more moving than being in the camp. Because in the camp, I felt like nobody needs my middle-class white tears, frankly. And so I sort of go into the mode of really being very jolly with everybody and sort of something kind of takes over my brain. But at One Happy Family, I felt like crying the whole time because everyone was so happy. And you know, that feeling when they're being really, really happy because they're in this really nice space that they've built themselves and painted everything beautifully and everything's gorgeous. And this is the respite from the camp. And that made me feel so moved. And there were refugees and volunteers and volunteers who had formerly been refugees working with people. And that was absolutely incredible. And these are all things that Choose Love support. So when you give to Choose Love, you were giving to this. Uh, There was an amazing man running a laundry um, who said his ex-wife was Syrian and his children were half Syrian. He was British. And he said, oh, my business kind of takes care of itself now. I go back once every three months to Britain and I run this laundry. And it was a service wash because if you're living in a really, really, really dirty, dirty, dirty place, everyone's constantly desperate to get clean. Watershed do these taps so people can wash and fill their water bottles. But everyone's constantly, constantly, constantly trying to get clean. And so this man... Uh, you put your bag of laundry in with your name on it and then you get it back like if you took it to a service wash in London. And he said, we try and do it to the standard that if people were paying for it in London. So we want to make it smell nice. We put a lovely tag on it. We make sure the socks are done properly so that when people get it back, it's a nice experience, like something lovely's happened for them. And that was a real theme coming through. Um, There's Mosaic, a former refugee, is running like a shop where refugees can get donations of clothing. And they've made it all like a boutique, hanging things everywhere because they said, we want people to have choice. And that makes people feel human, like not just okay, here's a hoodie in your size, throw it at you. It's like you can come in and browse and go, oh, I like this. What do you think of that color on me? Because that's, it's a little piece of humanity in a place where humanity is massively, massively lacking. And that was something that I really took from everyone. And more than anything, there's a project called Better Days. They run a school called Gecko Kids. And I met a woman called Eleanor who runs that school and she completely changed my life. And at the end, we were kind of hugging and saying we'll be friends forever. 
and she runs this school so incredibly, so many unaccompanied minors there. And that means kids from the age of 10 to 18 who are all on their own. And there are children with families as well. But I could not believe the school. And I got to sit in on classes, which was a massive, massive privilege because I was the only one in there other than the teacher sort of stressing at the back, trying not to make any noise. These kids, they were learning like their lives depended on it, which they do. I've never seen children so determined to learn before. Kids like who already speak their own language and English, trying to learn Greek like really fast, writing things down like almost panicked and asking each other and asking for help. It was so moving. Science class where everyone's helping each other. And Eleanor was explaining that some kids are 10 and have come in, you know, they've been at school since they were four. They're highly educated. And some kids are 18 and have never been to school and are literate. They have to work everybody at their own pace. They have to do a lot of self-directed learning. But the classes I went to, everyone was learning together. And there was this amazing English language class. The teacher was sort of you know, doing those kind of parsing exercises that you do if you learn a foreign language. And then she turned it into a conversation class and said, what do you like to do? And this one kid was like, oh, I like to play football. And his next kid said, oh, I like to listen to music. And the next kid said, well, I'm doing a lot of research at the moment, but I also write Farsi poetry. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, every country should be down there, send a representative down with a binder saying, this is what we'd offer you if you would come and live in our country. Because these kids are so ambitious. They're so clever. They're so driven. They're the heroes of their own story. They're Luke Skywalker. They have set out. And this is not to diminish anyone who has not been able to set out. We should be offering everybody love and kindness and compassion and opportunity. But I don't care who you are or what your worldview is. These kids are kids that every single country should be pitching for because they are absolutely the most determined children to the extent where I felt a bit concerned because I was like, there's no teenage high spirits. There's no one undermining this class. And teenagers are, I talked to Gina about it, who works with me about it afterwards. And she said, well, teenagers are always testing the boundaries because there's order and teenagers are trying to go how far outside this order into disorder can I go? But these children live in disorder, so they're trying to get inside order. They're trying to go, please, like, can we have some structure? And it was a really lovely moment where one of the kids up the back in the English language class just looked at me and went, who are you? And I went, oh, I'm just a friend of the school. And he went, it's a good school. And then there was like a little bit of high spirits, but the high spirits was sort of towards the class, if you see what I mean. But I was really relieved to see it. It was absolutely amazing. And there was also an incredible organisation, Dutch organisation called Because We Carry. So I'm now going to bring on our guests. Our guests today are the director of the Women and Children's Centre in the refugee camp in Lesbos, uh, Because We Carry, and a Syrian refugee swimmer and humanitarian aid worker. Please welcome to the stage Claudia Dross and Sara Mardini. Join. Hello. Right. So could you just introduce yourself? I am Claudia. I'm from Holland, from a little area in the north called Friesland. 24 years. And I've been working on Lesbos for since three and a half years. Mm. <laughs> and Sarah? Uh, so my name is Sarah. I'm 24 years old. And I was raised and born in Damascus, Syria. And now I'm a refugee based in Berlin. Um, student. Uh, social rescue swimmer, human rights defender. Wonderful. So, 
Claudia, can you tell us a bit about Because We Carry and what you're doing in Lesbos with the Women and Children's Centre? So I work for Because We Carry, and Because We Carry is existing since 2015, the summer approximately. And just like many NGOs that started literally in that period of time, responding to the refugee crisis, Because We Carry also started that way. They just, I think there was a switch into Europe, especially in the Dutch corner of Europe, where out of nowhere we all woke up and were like, oh shit, there's something happening on the other side of Europe. And it's not that far away, it's three and a half hours flying. Something got moved, I assume, and out of nowhere there were many Dutch people, German people, English people flying there and starting NGOs responding to the refugee crisis because there weren't official support. Because we carry my founder, Steffi, she saw on the news many people arriving on the shore, especially of the north of the island, with maybe one bag or two bags um, and maybe four, five, six children, not having anything. So a small baby here and another baby there and maybe five toddlers somewhere around. And she was like, okay, the people need baby carriers. I'll write something on Facebook. I'll try to get some baby carriers. And that went really well. And we got thousands of baby carriers. And she flew to Lesbos just handing out baby carriers. That's why we're called Because We Carry. And now, four years later, we're a pretty big NGO on Lesbos only. We're distributing breakfast in one of the camps, Caratepe. It's a smaller camp from the municipality. Three and a half years we do breakfast there for 1,300 people. Um, we have yoga class there every day. We have a, um, a run club in Moria. We also have yoga classes in Moria in the biggest camp of Europe. Little side note, you just said 14,000 people are living in Moria, but at this stage it's more than 17,000 people. <sighs> That's changed since I've been there then. Literally. That was only a few weeks ago. Yes. So it's now 17,000. Exactly. So the fact that we don't hear about it anymore, but every single day there are boats arriving and there is one or two NGOs in the north that are still responding to this. But that's it. Every day there are boats arriving with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people on it seeking for safety. And we don't hear about it anymore. It's uh, nothing. We need governments to step up because this is the result of selling arms. It's the result of colonization. It's the result of so much Western interference. It's the result of climate change. And these people aren't going in it. Like, they have to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we need help. And, you know, when I was there, I kind of got it. I was like, oh, my God. Josie Norton, who started Help Refugees... She used to work for Coldplay. She's a young woman who was in the music industry and just exactly like you kind of went, oh, there's a problem and went over and then got involved. And now she's going around the world trying to get money out of rich people so that these individual humanitarians can do the job that actually the government should be coming together to do. It's messed up. It's really messed up. But they're not doing it. So we have to. We absolutely have to because otherwise we're just going to let people slide through the cracks. But the Women and the Children Centre is gorgeous. I mean, compared to the rest of the camp. Yeah, so we're active in two camps, Caratepe, 1,300 people, and Moria, this stage, 17,000 people. And our focus is mostly women and children, especially um, small children and pregnant women, because they are the most vulnerable. Mm. besides everyone is vulnerable they are especially vulnerable so I think it's mostly the small things I believe strongly that medical care and food and shelter is extremely important that's why a few Dutch NGOs as because we carry moved on the ground and also Boat Refugee Foundation is uh, providing medical care and shelter and food as we do but small things as a yoga class every day or a run club that we're having or we're going to build a safe space for pregnant women where they can come and just sit there and relax with a stomach this big Mm -hmm. and even smaller things like 
we hang flowers in the barbed wire that's around the whole camp, just to forget that little piece of barbed wire. Because you asked them if they could take the barbed wire down, and they said yes. no. So then you said, but it's not good for people's mental state. Mm-hmm. And then they said, you can put flowers on it. No, they, no, they didn't <laughs> came up with that idea. We did. Oh, you said, we'll put flowers on it. And yeah, they went, fine. Yeah. yeah. It took yeah. A while, they yes. said, you can get fucked. Yeah. yeah. But it's sort of poignant to look at because there's flowers around this barbed wire and you're like, oh. But beautiful things going on there. I got offered threading um, for my eyebrows, which I'm a feminist, but I took slightly personally. Um, LAUGHTER uh, kids running around everywhere playing games you know there's brightness there's yoga there's an amazing running club and a lot of the refugees uh, now run on the island and they do better in running than locals yeah or than me um we also have a beauty salon and a barber shop in Karatape, for example in the other camp we have a chai point but we as the volunteers are not giving out tea to the others, but we have refugee people residing on the camp. They are our resident volunteers, and they are handing tea to all the other people. I think in total we have 50 resident volunteers at this stage that are taking care of our activities, basically. Mm. It's genuine, incredible work, and the happiness and the spirit of young mothers geeing each other on. It was the only place at the camp that I felt there was joy was the Women and Children's Centre, and it really did feel like a community. Sarah... You're someone who's had the refugee experience and you're still displaced, you can't go back to Syria. Could you please tell us a little bit about your story and what happened to you? So in August 2015, uh, my family decided to send us, me and my sister. We are professional swimmers since we've been five years old. No, we're not professional swimmers since we're five. Um, but you were trained swimmers since exactly, you were five. Yes, we're from an athletic family, all our parents. And, and you, were you swimming in Syria competitively? Yeah, we've been in the Syrian national swimming team. Um, so you were swimming for Syria? Yes. And uh, I was a law student. I think that... The whole idea where it came that we wanted to leave because every time, every day, every day we leave the house and close the door. For you, we don't think about it that moment, but for us every day I close the door and leave. I have to say goodbye for my parents and for my sisters because I don't know I'm going to see them again. And we believe and that no one deserves to live that way. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't want to just give up and sit and wait till the war is over and please God help me. So we decided just to leave. So I was supposed to go by my own, but then I was 20 by then. I could not do a family reunion to my parents and my sister. So my father said, my sister who was 17 back then, does she have to join me? Uh, we took a normal flight from Damascus airport to Turkey. Um, back then there was no visa, so it was pretty easy. And it was just today actually, I was talking about the story again with Claudia. And so the refugees, the refuge journey started before we even actually became refugees. Um, when we landed in Turkey and the pilot said, if anyone steals uh, life jackets from under the seat, you're gonna be fined and detained by the police. <gasps> and then we all looked at each other because we're all Syrians on the airplane. And then after that, when you arrived to Turkey, so the whole journey was already known because a lot of refugees crossed already, so we knew what we should do after. So we called the smuggler that we got phone number from previous refugees who crossed. Uh, he gave us location, where we should we go? And then we actually, it was pretty funny because we've been acting like 
trying to blend in between everybody because we don't anyone to see that we are refugees. And then I was quite shocked that I arrived at an area where there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people waiting for the uh, smuggler to come. He put us on the buses. We ride for 10 hours. You should turn your phone off. Curtains are closed. You are not allowed even to ask for a toilet. You need to stay quiet. And we arrived to uh, Izmir. Back then, I didn't know any of these names because I didn't know where I'd been. And then we thought, okay, we're going to go to Greece today and we're going to you know, make it to Europe today. We waited first day and he said our boat didn't arrive yet with us. So we waited first day and we waited second day, third day, fourth day, where it was just, we've been in the big, huge garden, let's say on the shore. We slept there. We didn't have any sleeping bags or tents or anything. We had only the clothes on us. We didn't have enough food or water because we didn't even know that we're going to sleep there. And we've been two girls by their own. And thank God we've been so lucky that there was a lot of other families that took care of us like we're their own daughters. And the fourth day we've threatened the smuggler that we're going to go back and then he calculated oh my god it's a lot of money mm -hmm. so he put our life on risk by sending us on the evening when it was a little bit windy and was wavy so he didn't care he put us in a boat that is basically if you just see that table and add to us where Claudia is pointing so how much do you think how many people will fit in this size oh god eight six we've been 20 uh, with a child, four years old. Twenty. Um, Twenty um, people, yeah. All men, only three females, including me and my sister. We got on a boat, the journey started, and the, here, the shock, it came to me, the smuggler was on the boat, and at five minutes later, he jumps and goes back, and I'm like, he's not driving the boat. Who's doing it? So he taught someone on the boat, in five seconds, you do that, you do that, you're fine. And then he goes back, so I'm like okay, you know, like, you don't know what's going to happen next. I wasn't quite surprising the boat starts sinking and the engine stopped working because we're talking about only rubber boat. If I put, like, a pencil inside it, it will broke. That's what people are using. Um, then one of the men on the boat came with the idea, why don't we jump on the sides because every boat has a rope? Uh, we hold from the sides. We make it heavy from the sides and light from inside so we can control our balance. We go up from the surface of the water and at the same time we, um, let's say, control it from the waves. So I am a professional swimmer. I'm a lifeguard. And I would never ever live with the idea that something happens to my sister where I could do something. Mm -hmm. And even with the people on the boat, because when you get a lifeguard certificate, you are responsible for the people in the water, no matter where you are. So I took an oath, you know, this is my job forever. So I stood up, and of course everybody looked at me, where the fuck she's going? Uh -huh. <laughs> you're just a woman. Where do you think you're going? <laughs> so I jumped in the water, actually, and I grabbed a rope uh, of, around the boat with one arm, and I used my other arm and other two legs, and just start swimming, you know? A couple of minutes later, my sister jumps and joins me, and then here we had a big fight, because I thought, I jumped for you. And she's oh. like, uh, but I also can swim. And I'm like, but I did it for you. And then she was like, well, if you do it, I will do it. And that's, I think that was enough for me to shut up and continue what I'm doing. We so the two of you swam pulling the boat? And exactly. all the people. Yeah, and other people actually joined in the water. There's people who didn't know even how to swim, who mm. jumped in the water. Because a lot of people call us heroes all around the world. But I would say, if you want to live, you will find a way to survive. Mm. And that's what the people on the boat wanted. They want to live. 
none of us wanted to die. And that's why we could just sit on the boat and cry and die, or we're either going to swim. We continued that way for three and a half hours. We arrived on Lesbos, the north shoreline of Lesbos at 9.30. And we thought, yay, we made it to Europe, finally. But we didn't know the journey just started. We are hungry, we're thirsty, we have bruises everywhere. We just want to change, like sleep on a bed, just feel human again. There was nothing open because in the north, I mean, all these names, I know it now after I volunteered. There was nothing open, but actually we found a restaurant and then a very nice lady, a Greek lady, Shtomi, a refugee, and I'm like, yes. And she was like, there's a church at the end of the street. Go sleep there. Tomorrow at 5 a.m., go back to the bus stop and they will pick you up. The whoever organization is coming. So it was like, you know, at least I had a shelter for a night. And then we went at 5 a.m. and then, I don't remember which organization, but it was back then. So I said, hey, we are like group here and we have a four years old child. Can we get in the bus? She was like, do you have a stamp? And I said, why would I need a stamp? And she was like, there's people waiting for a couple of days and they have stamp and I, I'm sorry, I cannot take you. So here I felt like I'm a package. <laughs> Like, you know, we have a four years old child with us. Like, I don't need more than vulnerability than this to be on a bus. But she was nice enough and she gave me a location and she told me, go there and I will pick you up. We walked for six hours of the heat of the sun of Lesbos and we made it. I was crying. I have asthma. Didn't shower since five days. If you guys didn't forget that we slept in the outside for four days. I just wanted a bed, mm. you know? I just wanted to shower. I just, just want to be human, you know? I, I just can't. It's just what you explained earlier. I just want to shower. I, the basic rights. It was quite shocking when we arrived to Lesbos. No one accepted us in hotels. No taxi stopped for us. Some cafes didn't accept us in, which was like a declaration. No one is allowed to help refugees. Mm. But we slept, where is the municipality and the court? There was a garden, we slept there for four days. We sneaked into the beach and we showered there. You know, we figured out a way. And then we got a ticket to the ferry. And there is something that refugees should get every time they cross to another country. It's kind of called kicked out paper, saying, I don't want to be a refugee in this country. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have it, you cannot cross. So that's why the journey sometimes takes longer. So we took this paper in four days, got a ferry ticket, and then we went to Athens, and then from Athens to Macedonia, Macedonia to Serbia, Serbia to Hungary, Hungary to Vienna, Austria, and then from Vienna, Austria to Munich, Germany. And from Munich, Germany, they put us on a bus, also 10 hours, to Berlin, to a refugee camp where we lived for eight months. Wow. What an incredible, incredible journey. And if any of us got lost at sea or we were, you know, we were out on a sailing boat or something and we had a, some kind of nautical disaster, the first thing that would happen is we would be picked up, we'd be taken to a hospital, we'd checked, we'd be given a hot shower, everyone would come around us, we'd be looked after. So can you imagine going through all of that trauma? You went back and volunteered and then what happened to you not long ago? So I was pretty traumatized by the boat journey and that gave me the reason why I wanted to go back because I wanted to see that shoreline that I mm. stepped in so I can get over it myself and I was working with a team called ERCI, Emergency Response Center International and what we did was basically we had a clinic in Moria refugee camp where we used to see 150 patients a day. Mm -hmm. We have and still working to right now 10 washing machines restores in one of the refugees camps. We run kids activities when the kids go to school 
take classes, we give them some fun activities to restore the information in a more fun way. And we had from 2015 till 2018, every single night, a spotting team on the shoreline, making sure there's no one drowns or there's nothing dangerous happening for the boats. And I was Arabic translator, search and rescue swimmer, and one of the coordinators of the team. Doing so got me arrested for 107 days, together with my colleague Sean Binder and another three colleagues. And Sean Binder just did the Secret Policeman's tour with us, and that's a podcast that will be coming out very soon in the next few days, and you can hear Sean's story, which is similar to Sarah's. Yeah, and we've been accu- we are accused, it's not over, of being part of criminal organization, espionage, money laundering, trafficking, and they recently added fraud. And, and they know 100% that Sean and Sarah are humanitarians. They know us. It's they even know, worse. They, they know. They know us. They worked with us. They know our names. I translated 100 times for them. They are with us on the shoreline. You know, the people who arrested us, we worked with them. They shaked our hands and said, thank you. Every single time we had a boat. So they know exactly what you've been doing down there. And why it's happening, I mean, usually I would say, our, why they arrested me? Because I was giving water and blankets on the shoreline. If that a crime, we all are criminals. Mm-hmm. But the actual reason why this is happening, because governments believe that by me and Claudia being in Lesbos or any humanitarians all around the world being in the, um, in the hotspots, we encourage the refugees to cross, which I have one sentence for that. When I came in 2015, I didn't give a fuck if there's someone on the other side or not, because I'm not going to put my life on a risk because there's someone else waiting for me with a water bottle on the shoreline. So that's, that's what it's that is all about. But they're trying to discourage humanitarians and refugee... Well, they're res- arresting them. Yeah, they're trying to discourage other people that go, yeah. oh, well, I might get arrested. So they're making an example of you. And they succeed. Now yeah. on the south shoreline where we work, there's nobody. And since that criminalizing of humanitarians started, the increase of the death of, in the Mediterranean... It's just unbelievable. One of the groups that I met out there was Refugee Rescue, who go and guide people in and make sure they don't get into trouble in the water. And they're all like professional nautical people. They need volunteers, but you've got to have some skills. You've got to be either a, you know, like a rescue lifeguard diver, or like yeah, of course, or, we just or a lifeguard. Don't put anyone on the shoreline like that. No, no, no. They're all professional people who are also humanitarians who go out to help. And they said, we've got to be so careful what we do so that we don't get charged with trafficking or smuggling. And, you know, as you told that story, the smugglers don't get in the boats. The smugglers don't do that. The smugglers just go, here's the boat, go. They guard the shoreline, they've got guns, they don't let people take their own dinghies. The smugglers are bad guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really bad stories about smugglers. Like, I know stories that some people was like, hey, dude, so the boat is overcrowded. You get in or you die. You have no choice. You're not human. You have no words. Yeah, the smugglers are bad guys. They are bad guys. And they know that you're humanitarians and they're deliberately now arresting humanitarians and you are potentially, when your case goes to court, up for how many years in jail? 25 years. Fuck. And I'm 24 and Sean is 25. I can't believe that you will go to jail. I know you've already been in jail for three months for this. And you're out on bail at the moment and we're trying to help Sean raise the money for his bail because he's working in a health food shop to pay off the 10,000 euros bail. I mean, it's so terrible, but what is so 
just gutting and horrifying about this is we're back to 1930s Germany because in Greece and Germany, it's illegal to watch a Greek or a German person drown. You do time for that if you didn't help them. But if you help a refugee and put your hand out while they're drowning, you can go to jail. So that's now we've got two kinds of people. One, you go to jail if you don't save their life. One, you go to jail if you do save their life. Because we're not counting them as people. Yeah, really. And the day that I came back from Lesbos, which was only a few weeks ago, some actual human being in the European Union put forward a bill saying we've got to do more to help refugees who are dying in the Mediterranean. Thousands of refugees have died in the last few years in the Mediterranean. We've got to do more. That bill was voted out by the far-right parties across Europe, along with the centre-right parties. And when the bill went down, so that they said, no, we're not going to help, we're not going to do anything, the European Union's going to do nothing, the far-right parties, including the Brexit party, cheered. And Refugee Rescue told me that 45% of the people they're helping in in dinghies are babies, children, or minors. So that's 45% are under 18 and lots of them are babies. There was a woman who actually gave birth, who was, went into labor in the dinghy. You know, like, what, what are we doing? And, and people from the Brexit party cheered and apparently banged things on the table. So it's not just they're going, look, sorry, we just don't have the room. Sorry about that. We, this is awful for you, but it's nothing to do with us. They cheered. That's cheering the death of children. And I, I, I mean, I just... I don't, I don't know what we can do except to educate other people and push back because I just don't think most people in this country want that. I just think they don't know. Yeah, or they I think, oh, think I don't know. know about politics, me. And I think we've just got to start politicising the people in the middle because the people on the right aren't listening. Yeah. They, we can't fight with the people on the right anymore. We've got to start politicising the people in the middle. What can we do to help you specifically? Uh, to help me and help Sean, we've been very lucky that Amnesty International took our case, one of the this year campaign right for rights uh, cases, which is very, very more disgusting. It's not us. There's 150 cases around the world, same exact situation like me and Sean. 12 cases been taken care of through Amnesty International. Please, when you go home, it's not going to take you more than two minutes, exactly two minutes. Put amnesty.org, there is right for rights petition, sign it and share it. And if you want to do five minutes, you can write a letter to the Greek government to ask them to drop the charges so we don't end up spending 25 years in jail. So if you're listening to this at home, can you please quickly do that petition, do right for rights? Because it does work because the Greek government, if they know loads and loads of people around the world are looking at them, are, mm. will be embarrassed. And they just don't need the aggro. They know these people are humanitarians. They know. If everybody is causing a fuss and going, are you fucking serious, Greece? They won't send them to jail. But if nobody's looking or caring, they might. So it does make a difference. You think, oh, what difference does this petition make? On right for rights, it does make a difference. Amnesty, no, it makes a difference. There's an absolute metric for success on this. It will make a difference. It will keep Sarah and Sean out of jail if we make enough of a fuss about it. Live audience, are you on for it? And, and you, don't, you don't have to be adult. There's kids in the schools, they're doing, writing letters to the governments. People 
all around the world are writing. There's no age for this. If you're four, you're five, you're six, if it, as long as you can write, just do it. Please do it. Please do it. Like, I'm not going to spend, I, I'm 24. Like, I'm going to spend, you know, I'm 50 my, by the time I'm going to go out. If we're going to end up on 25 years only. So it's technically 100 years. We're going to be charged for every refugee 20 years. You know, so like, it's just ridiculous. It's just, just ridiculous. And it's not about only the case. We are suffering right now. Me and Sean are suffering. I'm seen as a hero, but Sean is not. Every time he applies to a job right now, everybody is like, hey, you have a criminal record. Because of my background, because I'm Syrian, because I'm a refugee, everybody, you know, uh, you're so inspiring. We stand with you. But at the end of the day, what about Sean, you know? It doesn't matter where I'm from or where he's from. We're all humans. And we are suffering mentally as well. We are trying to find money to support ourselves. Our family is struggling. I don't know how Claudia lived three and a half months out there when she knew that her friend was in there. And you know, every time I told my family I'm fine, but no one believed me, you know. Mm -hmm. And apart from that, it's really sad that I'm suffering from depression and PTSD right now. And I didn't suffer from it in war in Syria, I didn't suffer from it from crossing, didn't suffer from it from working in Greece, I suffered from it from the situation that I'm in right now. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievably tiring. Mm -hmm. I'm a student, yeah. I just wanna go to school, do my finals and go home and sleep, not worry about how I should prepare myself because I need to testify again, yeah. Yeah. how I should you know, ask people to, to share the petition every day. You know, like, I don't think I, I should even sh ask people to share it. You know, because it might be harsh to say that, but it could be your daughter next, it could be yourself next, it could be your husband, your boyfriend, it could be you, all of yeah. you in here, anyone. So just think about it that way. Put yourself in our shoes and another 150 humanitarian out there who put everything on the side, put their education, left their family, and used their own money that they've been saving for years to help others. So just think about it when you go home, please. Okay. Do you have political asylum in Germany? Yes, we have. And your sister has uh, swum for Germany? Uh, no, she swam to the, for the refugee Olympic team in oh, she Rio de Janeiro. Are you swimming again? Uh, no, I got a life, uh, and I got a permanent injury from crossing, mm. and I cannot be a professional swimmer anymore. So I study instead. So you're at school, you're at university in Berlin? Yeah. What are you studying? International relations and art. I know you're not allowed to raise money for yourself because that's part of the situation. Part of the case. You can't part of raise the case your own money. You can't raise your own money because you're seen to be... Counts as raising criminal funds, potentially. Yeah, because um, I'm uh, quite blessed that I'm very good with fundraising and it's quite funny that uh, the last couple of years in Lesbos, I, I cannot say the number, but I got a lot of funding in there uh, just to support the organisation, especially my own team. And because I did that also, I'm not allowed to speak up. I don't have speech freedom. I don't have anything. I know it sounds pretty sad, <laughs> everything. But we started in my own university with another uh, four humanitarians. Uh, it's called uh, Bart College Berlin Emergency Club, which basically we kind of do a little bit like choose love. Uh, I'll help refugees. Everybody have extra clothes at home and everybody is a little bit lazy to take them somewhere. So we ask you to keep it at home. Just give me a call. I come and pick it up. And then we are shipping them to Greece. Mm 
So we brainstormed a way that I won't be criminal again, and we just started this club. But you're still doing humanitarian stuff for Lesbos? Of course. Yeah. Please, please, please give generously to Choose Love this season. I'm going to be at the shop on the 21st of December at 3pm. If you bring a book, uh, I mean my book, ideally, I will sign it. I'm going to do a book signing there at 3 o'clock. Uh, but bring it, I'm not selling it there. And Or you can get me to do like a video of I'm a Feminist Butt for a Mate for Christmas. She signs The Handmaid's Tale as well, actually. Yeah, I have think. done that. But, but I just sign it by I didn't write this. Uh, I have been asked to sign other feminist books. Just and the Big Gay Karma Sutra. Yeah, Big Gay Karma Sutra. Jess will sign that for you. Um, and so I'll be there at 3 o'clock. But you can go to Choose Love Shop any day. Uh, it's on Neil Street. Claudia, before we finish, is there anything else you want to say or any other way we can support or help you or anybody else on Lesbos? I think most importantly, at this stage, uh, alive in 2020 almost, there's such a big gap between us in the West and people on the shores of Lesbos, for example, or still stuck in Turkey or in Syria or wherever in Afghanistan. There's such a big gap and it should be less big. People should, in Holland, for example, we should get a face to this crisis. So please go to the Choose Love store, uh, volunteer somewhere in your neighborhood, or if it's not in your neighborhood, just do your research and help somewhere. Because whenever there is this first step you make and it becomes familiar to you and it gets a face, it's so easy to go along and keep helping. And it will help you because it will make you happy and it will make them happy and then we're all happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else, Sarah, that you want to say and yes. leave on the stage before you go? Yes. Unfortunately, now the volunteers taking the headlines because we're getting criminalized. But before that, no one supported the volunteers and the humanitarians and the people who's out there right now. And there was a problem that I noticed it myself because I'm Syrian and I went back. I've been called as a hero. But no one actually noticed that Claudia had done three and a half years of volunteering there. So... It's just I'm going to put it out there. It doesn't matter what's your background, if you're white or you're not, and if you're people of color or not. We're all helping, and we're all doing the same. And I think everybody deserves the same respect. And I want to thank you, actually, because this is the first time me and Claudia are on the same panel since three years of our friendship. So thank you for recognizing that we both are actually doing the work, not just me or not just her. And we really appreciate that you brought us here today. Well, it's been a privilege to have you. A genuine privilege to have you. And we just need to do more about this idea that some people don't deserve rescuing from the ocean and we can just let some people drown. Like, we've we've got to do something. Can I tell you what we can do? We can go out on the street in millions for climate change. So if we can do that, I think we can also go in streets millions for refugees and the people who, whose rights being unjust. So this is what we can do. Yeah. And we need to educate people who are basically compassionate people but just don't know. There's so many people in your life who don't see themselves as political, but I think if they knew this, they would be like, oh, no, that's not right. We need to start asking for more from our governments. It's absolutely imperative that we do something because it's not just about this it's about this increasing attitude it is happening it is happening it is happening it's happening we're going back to fascism i don't want to be in a situation you know many of you know if you listen to this podcast that steve lives with tom and me and is our family now i don't want to be in a situation where 
we have a government that starts an ICE-like situation like in America where they start deporting people and I have to be at the door pretending that Steve's not there. I don't want to be hiding Anne Frank in my attic. I mean, that is that what we're coming to? Because it feels like it. Fucking feels like it to me. I don't want this. I just, I can't, I don't think any of us want this. But unless we start making noise, it is where we're going. And we should not forget, I think, that especially in the West, we can think a refugee crisis is far away. It's, mm. it's not close to our own doors. But with the current climate change, it's f extremely possible that in maybe five or 10 or 20 or 30 years, I'm, I'm from Holland, especially I'm from the north, Friesland, and that the water, the ocean will come into our country and we're not safe there anymore. We have to go somewhere else. It's very close by. It can happen to anybody. Oh, it so can happen in our lifetime. So it's not far away. It's pretty no. close by. There could be a war in Europe because of everything that's going on. There could be climate change quite easily in our lifetime. We could be refugees and we could be in a boat hoping that when we get to somewhere else, somebody says, here's a blanket, here's a bottle of water. Steve once said to me that his mum took in refugees his whole childhood because in, loads of refugees went to Syria um, from Iraq and other places around. And, and he said to his mum once, why do you take so many refugees in? And she said, I'd hope some do it for you. And... It's, you know, I, I don't believe in karma, but, you know, I, I just think we would hope someone would do it for us, the people we love, and we've just got to do a bit more and be a bit noisier, I think. That's all we can do. This has been quite an emotional episode. Um, but we remember how funny we were at the top about the crown. <laughs> that about the crown do you reckon the queen's had a blowjob <laughs> a blowjob given one sorry i don't think we want to be here for that no <laughs> fair enough that was funny it's really funny look this is we if we do nothing else on this podcast we can do a gear change <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to the guilty feminists with me Deborah francis white guest co-host jessica and our very special guests, Claudia Drost and Sarah Medini. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Salinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe, Sally and everyone at King's Place as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Cut that out. Cut, cut it that out. out. Cut, cut that out. Can't be asked. Very busy. Cut that Just out. cut it out. Cut that out. Um, uh, it's worth coming live because we cut out so much. This, yeah. this podcast will be uh, 10 minutes long. We're yeah. so careful. To support Sarah and Sean, please visit amnesty.org.uk forward slash right, W-R-I-T-E. We can also find out more about Amnesty's global right for rights campaign to help other people. Please go there right now. It's really important and it really works.